Hello and welcome to Battlecast, I'm Dr. Luke Wolf, and today we've got a very interesting story. It's the story of the African-American colonization of Liberia, a modern African nation many of you know little about. Its flag is eerily similar to the United States banner, its constitution almost identical, its primary language English. And yet this little American experiment has experienced immense brutality before, during, and after the black American colonization, which established a new ruling class over the indigenous African majority. It's black-on-black -black apartheid. But before we can get to that, I've got to thank Jim from Redding, California, and Tom from Brandon, Manitoba, for buying us around. And if you want to buy us around, head over to thebattlecast.com and hit that make a donation button. You know, I was at a podcast gathering the other day, and a podcaster said, You know, Dr. Wolf, you sure don't get many listeners, do you? I looked that bastard in the eye. I said, You know what? One Battlecast listener is worth a million limp-wristed bastards listening to another podcast. I don't give a shit. We'll pack the house or not. I'll tell these stories alone with a tin cup and a piece of string if I have to. I don't care. By the way, thanks for all the emails, guys. But now, reverse colonization, an unusual settler society, America's African stepchild. It's a military history of Liberia. Uncle Tom's Cabin, one of the most famous examples of American literature, when placed side-by-side side with another famous American novel, Gone with the Wind, demonstrates the schizophrenic nature of American identity. I can't stress the importance of these two books. They've sold millions of copies and influenced the worldview of literally millions of people, especially Uncle Tom's Cabin before the American Civil War. But what does Uncle Tom's Cabin have to do with Liberia? At the end of the novel, George Harris, a mixed-race runaway slave, receives an education in France, where else, right, and returns to the North to gather his family and immigrate to Liberia. Harris's words help us understand the motivations which led black Americans to immigrate to Liberia. Quote, It is with the oppressed, enslaved African race that I cast my lot, and if I wished anything, I would wish myself two shades darker rather than one lighter. The desire and yearning of my soul is for an African nationality. I want a people that shall have a tangible, separate existence of its own. On the shores of Africa, I see a republic, a republic formed of picked men who, by energy and self-educating force, have, in many cases individually, raised themselves above a condition of slavery. There it is my wish to go and find myself a people. Let us see what we can do with this Liberia. And the whole splendid continent of Africa opens before us and our children. Our nation shall roll the tide of civilization and Christianity along its shores and plant their mighty republics and shall be for all coming ages. Do you say that I am deserting my enslaved brethren? I think not. If I forget them one hour, one moment of my life, so may God forget me. But what can I do for them here? Can I break their chains? No, not as an individual. But let me go and form part of a nation, which will have a voice in the councils of nations, and then we can speak. A nation has a right to argue and present the cause of its race, which an individual has not. One day serfdom and all unjust and oppressive social inequalities will be done away with. We ought to be free to meet and mingle in America, to rise by our individual worth without any consideration of caste or color. And they who deny us this right are false to their own professed principles of human equality. We have more than the rights of common men. We have the claim of an injured race for reparation. But then, I do not want it. 
I want a country, a nation of my own. I think that the African race has peculiarities yet to be unfolded in the light of civilization and Christianity, which, if not the same with those of the Anglo-Saxon, may prove to be morally of an even higher type, end quote. Now, many themes of our schizophrenic American identity are present in Harris's speech. First, the professed belief in human equality. Second, a chiliastic belief in an end to all oppression. Third, a belief in individual hard work to raise up anyone, even a slave, to the ranks of senators. Fourth, the belief that black Americans have a unique claim on the United States. I should point out to my friends on the right, all of these beliefs were written down and applauded by millions across the Western world before the American Civil War and the advent of the Frankfurt School. Indeed, Confederate Vice President Alexander Stevens admitted as much in his famous cornerstone speech. The truth is, as Rene Guénon rightfully pointed out, these ideas were birthed within the West, not imposed or whispered from outside. They weren't implanted by other peoples. The values articulated by Harriet Beecher Stowe arose out of the unique, secularized West, the same ideas that led German universities to acidly critique away their own faith in the Christian religion, all of which took place during the extreme nationalism of the 1800s. But what does Stowe's excerpt at the end of Uncle Tom's Cabin tell us about Liberia? First, many of the men who first colonized it were freed men, often mixed race as Harris is himself. Moreover, there is a unique desire of all people to have their own nation. Indeed, this desire is explicitly contrasted by Stowe with the idea of all people mingling. The truth is all humanity exists on a spectrum, from desiring total autonomy, paradigmatically exemplified by Sparta, to desiring a money-based society where trade flourishes and people and ideas freely mingle, typified by Athens and Corinth, in ancient Greece. All of us, Liberians, Greeks, Jews, Christians, exist on this spectrum. In fact, as Dr. Isaiah Gaffney in his lectures on Judaism points out, a wide range of traditions exist within Judaism, and I would point out within Christianity as well, and that Jews and Christians periodically reconnect to and re-emphasize these traditions. The traditions exist along this continuum, as most, if not all, human societies do. Anyway, Harris's speech emphasizes his desire for autonomy, for sovereignty, a major theme in modern African history and culture. When Robert Mugabe, the former president of Zimbabwe, was seriously challenged by the movement for democratic change, he plastered posters across the length and breadth of Zimbabwe calling for total decolonization. This same idea was emphasized by Julius Nyeri in African Socialism. And so we see the unique connection between Liberia and America, exemplified in the last pages of one of America's most famous works of literature. Now, I know most of you know very little about Liberia, which is a shame considering the role the United States played in the early history of that nation. James Clements provides the best summary of the motives behind the black American colonization of Liberia, so I'll just quote him, quote, the early 19th century American politicians who devised the plan to send freed black Americans back to Africa considered it an inspired idea. America could rid itself of its most disgruntled class of people while simultaneously establishing a beachhead from which Africa could be civilized and Christianized. The settlers who eventually signed up for the experiment dreamed of a free haven for all persons of African descent. But their idealism was hard to sustain in the concrete conditions of the west coast of Africa. To the native Africans, the settlers were just another group of outsiders with hostile intentions. They called the newcomers the black white men and attacked their settlements. As one early settler explained in a letter to his former master in America, you can try to help the natives, but they still will be your enemy. 
and the settlers did plenty to provoke the indigenous population. Indeed, the settlers' idealism started to erode as soon as they touched African land. The settlers, whose children called themselves Americos, could never really decide whether the Africans were their long-lost brethren, heathens to be redeemed, or savages to be conquered. From the beginning, there was mutual distrust and animosity between the colonists, soon to be Liberians and the natives. They would, over the next century and a half, seek by turns to mollify, to trade with, to make war on, to dispossess, and to rule over. And in almost every instance, the Liberians, like many ruling classes throughout history, put their survival over their ideals. End quote. This is an important point. Ideals are fine when they don't cost anything, but it's in, as Carl Schmidt notes, the moment of decision when we really see what people's true ideals are. A devout Christian who commits adultery never was devout, not really, because when faced with a stark choice, a decision, he chose adultery. The same is true for how welcoming New York City has been to the endless stream of migrants coming to that city. Migration is fine and well when it's overwhelming the resources of Brownsville, Texas, but it's not so great when it's in Martha's Vineyard or New York City. In the moment of decision, the masks fall off. I could cite many more examples. And of course, one example is the history of Liberia. Dr. M. B. Akpan, a Nigerian professor, describes the African-American ruling class with words that help us understand the immense impact culture and religion has on ethnicity. Akpan writes thus, quote, The settlers on whom the government of Liberia devolved from 1841 were essentially American rather than African in outlook and orientation. They retained a strong sentimental attachment to America, which they regarded as their native land. They wore western styles of dress, however unsuitable this attire was to Liberia's tropical weather. Abraham Lincoln top hats and a long black frock coat for men, and a Victorian silk gown for women. They built themselves frame, stone, or brick porticoed houses, many two stories tall and quite similar to those of the plantation owners of the southern United States. And they preferred American food like flour, cornmeal, butter, beef, bacon, and American-grown rice, large quantities of which they imported. Two African foodstuff like plantains and country rice grown by Africans in the hinterland. They were Christians, spoke English as their, quote, mother tongue, and practiced monogamy. They held land individually, in contrast to the communal ownership of the African population, and their political institutions were modeled on those of America, with an elected president and legislature made up of a Senate and House of Representatives, so that in spite of their color, they were as foreign and lacking in sentimental attachment to Africa as were European colonists like the British and the French, end quote. As we will see, this distinction between black Americans who called themselves Americos and native Liberians never went away and ultimately led to a sort of partial genocide and a demi-race war between the American Liberians and the indigenous population. But I'm getting ahead of myself. The history of Liberia starts in New York City. Now, innocently enough, I just offended numerous people. A lot of you are shrugging and saying, what? Why are they offended? Some people are offended because they think I'm ignoring the indigenous Africans who lived in Liberia before American settlers arrived. They are wrong. Let me be clear. The indigenous people of the modern state of Liberia had a history and a story before the 90-odd mixed-race and black families left New York City on a ship that's been called the Black Mayflower. I value the native people of Liberia's story, and all human history is now and will always be important to me personally and to this podcast until I die. Put succinctly, all history is important and provides concrete case studies for theory and unalterable laws governing human affairs. So for me, Maori, Armenian, Korean, and Khoikhoi history is valuable and important. I'm not saying that to virtue signal. I really mean it.
But this isn't a history of the indigenous Kron people. It's a history of the state and peoples of Liberia. And that history starts on a ship called Elizabeth, loaded down with 90 freed men whose teeth were chattering and bodies were shivering in the New York cold on February 6, 1820. It was on that day that the first Afro-Americans set sail for the west coast of Africa to a country they called Liberia, meaning the free land, and they were tired. You would have been too. The freedmen had worked for days with picks and shovels to free the Elizabeth from the whole gripping ice. Finally, they had freed the ship. When they set sail, hundreds, perhaps thousands of people, watched the boat slowly lumber into the Atlantic Ocean. Here was a peculiar solution to America's peculiar institution, resettlement in Africa. It's an idea that has repeatedly inspired black intellectuals and minorities of the general black population of America for centuries. And if you don't believe me, just ask Marcus Garvey and his thousands of followers. In a way, it's part of all of us, this idea of a return to a spiritual, cultural, or ethnic homeland. One thinks of the Jewish people's return not once, but twice to the land comprising modern Israel. You could also cite the King Alfred legend, who will return one day to save Britain from her deepest distress. Let's hope he returns soon. We see the same idea in the Muslim pilgrimage to Mecca and the Protestant hope of returning to an original primitive church. Many of us, though not many of our New England elite, long for a return to our roots. There's nothing inherently wrong with this idea. It's a universal attribute of humanity, the universal desire for a particular identity. I just wish our elite could understand that instead of trying to mold everyone into a new utopian ideal. I say let people pursue both utopian progressivism and, at the same time, living in peace. Communities next door can pursue primitive Christianity without the nettlesome interference of billions of dollars producing dependency up and down the length and breadth of the United States and the world. And if you don't believe me, just ask Ukrainian President Zelensky when he comes hat in hand to beg for money to maintain his army. He's dependent. This is precisely what Ian Smith meant when he, agreeing with Julius Nyeri, said African nations were becoming dependent on outside nations. Don't laugh, American. Almost all of your schools, your basic institutions, from the police to the library, and your churches are equally dependent. You think that's air you're breathing now? And so, the 90 black Americans sailing on the Elizabeth were seeking a great return to their homeland, to Africa. But Africa's a big place, and there were millions of people already there. People whose loyalties were essentially tribal, who had no grand conception of pan-African unity. They were people who resented newcomers building cities on their communal land. People with a different language, mode of life, and sometimes different physical attributes. They were somewhat similar to each other in race. But in so much else, the two groups, settlers and natives, were completely different. Little is known about these 90 black Americans. Most were literate, most were from either Pennsylvania or New York, many were mixed race. A majority were male, but there were women and children on the boats as well. Or boat, I should say. None of them were former slaves. All were free men and women. In a country where out of a population of 1.75 million black Americans, only 230,000 or 13% were free. Many, likely a majority, of these 230,000 freedmen were mixed race, further distinguishing the American Liberian settlers from the native Africans they would soon encounter in West Africa. And the Elizabeth did not exist in a vacuum. She was sailing under the patronage of the American Colonization Society, an organization comprised of many of the leading Americans of the day, including Henry Clay, Francis Scott Key, who wrote the Star-Spangled Banner. Think of that next time you're at a football game. Daniel Webster and numerous other prominent Americans. The avowed purpose of the organization was, as Henry Clay himself said in 1816, quote, to rid our country of a useless and 
pernicious, if not dangerous, portion of its population, while at the same time spreading the arts of civilized life and the possible redemption from ignorance and barbarism of a benighted quarter of the globe in Africa, end quote. This was the kind of language considered normal both North and South in 1816. But ideals are one thing, money and action are something else. James Kimmett takes up the story. Quote, Ultimately, the society would extract an inadequate $100,000 from Congress, which is $2 million in today's money, and raise modest sums from supporters, mostly through appeals to evangelical congregations in the North and Upper South, end quote. Among Pennsylvania black Americans, the idea of colonizing Africa was not met with widespread excitement. The majority wanted to remain in the United States, but there was a minority who did not. And it was these who formed the core of the Elizabeth's passengers. Many of them longed for self-government, and eventually they would achieve it, but not in 1820. At that time, three white Americans served as governors for the colonists. Many of the settlers resented the European supervision, but the expedition sailed on anyway. In a little more than a month, the Elizabeth, after enduring numerous minor and major problems, sighted the west coast of Africa. They had made it, and 43,000 square miles of Africa would never be the same again. The date was March 9, 1820. After spending a few days in Freetown, Sierra Leone, the colonists transferred their belongings to another shallow-bottomed ship and made their way to an island called Sherbro where a local English-speaking trader named John Kizzle, himself a member of the Sherbro tribe, promised the natives would welcome the newcomers. Kizzle was full of crap. The water on the island was so bad, Kizzle had barrels full of good water shipped to the island in order for the settlers to survive. Moreover, his own tribe distrusted him because of his westernized ways. At first, things went well. The natives seemed to welcome the newcomers, and Kizzle had built 12 dwellings for them, so they did have housing. That's when the trouble started. The settlers soon found out the land they were supposed to live on was horrible, surrounded by fetid, mosquito-breeding swamps and barely above sea level. The colonists found themselves in a wretched location. That's when negotiations for a better settlement began. You can imagine how that went. The natives were nice, but every single local village leader told the American agents the same thing. We can't help you. You're going to have to talk to the king. The problem was the agents couldn't schedule a meeting with the king, and they met delaying tactics from the locals every time they tried. Meanwhile, sickness from the noisome conditions at their temporary camp was reaping a terrible toll on the settlers. A historian provides the sordid details, quote, from the time it starts in April through its end in November, the rainy season inaugurated by howling windstorms that mariners of the day call tornadoes brings torrential downpours to Sherbro that can last for days on end. Farming is impossible, life is miserable, and in an age before mosquito netting and insecticides, very tenuous. The settlers began to sicken even before the first drops fell. By April 6, 21 of them were incapacitated. Two days later, the number had risen to 35, two-thirds of whom exhibited symptoms of a dangerous character and all appeared to be getting worse by the hour, one leader later recounted. There are eight entire families sick, among whom there is not one able to cook his own food or wait upon a child. The settlers were dying of malaria and the vector was the mosquito, endemic to the region and especially prevalent in swampy, low-lying spots precisely where the colonists were located. Death was their constant companion. The symptoms were excruciating. These consisted, one man noted, of pains in the head, back, limbs, attended with inflammation of the eyes, lassitude, and depression of spirits. The fever is horrid, and in many cases attended with delirium. 
The sick were suffering from diarrhea and high fever and were extremely dehydrated and there was little potable water on the malarious island. Despair set in. Not only were the colonists' bodies racked by pain and their minds by delirium, in the end a quarter of them, mostly women, would die. But they were marooned as well. If the natives visited their fetid encampment, it was only to steal unguarded supplies, especially rum, end quote. Predictably, under such conditions, colonists were dissatisfied, especially with the white agent who was boss over all of them. They petitioned to be moved, or if not moved, then put in charge of their own affairs. The agent in charge of the expedition, a former Marine and devout Christian named Samuel Bacon, couldn't believe the revolt. He had worked like a madman, doing all he could to take care of the six settlers, and he refused to even consider the petition and his work caught up with him. He literally killed himself caring for the sick colonists. He died from malaria on May 2nd and he was buried on a nearby island. The settlers' troubles continued. Yet another white agent died, but before he did, he transferred his authority to a mixed-race pastor named Daniel Coker. Immediately, the 60 remaining colonists refused to obey Coker. Taking provisions whenever they wanted something, organization breaking down in the process, and Kizzle was no help. He set about poisoning the colonists against Coker, while at the same time stealing from the supplies and giving the invaluable western-manufactured products to local chiefs in order to gain their loyalties. Coker was fed up. He left Sherbro and went to Sierra Leone. Convinced to return with the remaining supplies by an American naval officer, Coker went back to the island, but he was a leader without a people. Rejected by the remaining colonists... Coker returned to Sierra Leone, and he never set foot in Liberia again. When the rainy season finally stopped, all of the remaining colonists abandoned Sherbro and settled outside of Freetown. The Liberian colonists had returned to British-ruled Sierra Leone. The first settlement of American free men in Africa had ended in failure, but there was no stopping the American Colonization Society. They sent another expedition. The ship was called the Nautilus and it reached a suburb of Freetown, Sierra Leone, about a year after the Elizabeth, with just 34 colonists. These colonists were combined with the 60 remaining colonists from Sherbro. As they labored on a rented farm in British-ruled Sierra Leone, two white American agents named Robert Stockton and Eli Ayers from the American Colonization Society endeavored to find a better place for the American freemen to live. The two men were diligent and pious, working like beavers for the settlers. They found a place 200 miles away from Freetown. It was called Cape Miserado, and it was a land lush with tropical rain and sunshine. Many were impressed by the climate. Some prospective settlers disliked the rampant growth, complaining it made the land hard to cultivate. Still, there was little doubt that it was a decent area for colonization. Most of the complainers at least survived long enough to complain. At Sherbro Island, it was touch and go if any of them would even live, hence the difference between the two locations. There was only one problem. The local natives were notoriously distrustful of outsiders. You can imagine how much that influenced Robert Stockton. These idolaters would soon learn the benefits of Christianity. If not, that was too bad for them. Someone would point it out for them. Little is known about the indigenous Africans who inhabited modern-day Liberia before the American settlers arrived. James Commit provides this succinct overview. Quote, some archaeologists theorize that humans have inhabited the rainforest of Liberia for tens of thousands of years, but the region's unforgiving climate washed away the evidence long ago. Of the native inhabitants, when the first colonists arrived, the oldest were the Mel and Kwa-speaking peoples. Mel-speaking peoples who inhabited a broad swath of territory from the Niger Delta in the east to the interior of Sierra Leone in the west developed more structured societies. It was they who created a rigid, age-based social hierarchy. The chiefs of the Mel-speakers derived authority from their lineage. 
Qua societies were more anarchic. Village leaders governed themselves while the local headmen were usually chosen by councils of elders to whom they were answerable. It was a Qua people the day that Ayers and Stockton sat down to negotiate with at Cape Meserado in December 1821. Europeans had been in contact with local natives for centuries, mostly Portuguese, seeking a unique blend of pepper that was sourced from the region. Still, despite the demand for pepper, trade with the coast remained slight throughout the early 19th century. The shoreline offered no natural harbors, at least none free of treacherous sandbars, and the steady winds produced heavy surf. While slave trading was not entirely unknown along this stretch of coast, the land that would be named for liberty did not have large slave factories. Still, local tribes engaged in the practice and were violently jealous of any interference. Slave dealing was the locals' best source of the hard currency needed to buy the coveted goods like rum, tobacco, and guns brought by European traders." End quote. Harrison Ackingbade provides a little more background while also noting the importance of power and the physical distribution of people, something we noted in our series on Southern Africa. Dr. Ackingbade writes, quote, Liberia is peopled by more than 15 indigenous ethnic groups. Most of them had migrated to modern-day Liberia as a result of disturbances in the empires of the Western Sudan during the period spanning the 12th to 16th centuries. There was another wave of migration in the 19th century. This migration was caused by the Islamic jihads in the Sahara area, end quote. It was in these fractured and mistrustful conditions that negotiations between the settlers' agents, who were white, and the local Kwa people took place. For days, the agents sent messages to the king asking for a meeting. For days, they got nowhere. Then a native came to the beachside camp and said, The king be fool. He no talk English. I his mouth. What I say, king say. What you want? Ayers launched in his high-pitched voice into the ACS talking points. We come in peace. We come to trade. We come to offer you civilization. This, Ayers admitted, immediately excited their suspicions that we were going to break in upon the customs of their forefathers, end quote. The agents presented numerous gifts to the Kwa, tobacco and rum, and they did not openly brandish weapons. However, Stockton hid two pistols under his clothes. The date was December 12th. A modern historian details what happened next. Quote, when King Peter showed up later that day, the two agents began to compliment him. We did not fail to let him know the high estimation in which we held him for veracity and punctuality, Ayers reported, and that this had induced us to prefer him to some other chiefs. Peter was duly flattered but unmoved. He could offer the two islands at the mouth of the Meserado River, small muddy flats barely above the high tide mark, but not the headland. If any white man was to settle on it, he explained through his interpreter, a local mulatto trader named John Mills, then King Peter would die and his women would cry aplenty. The agents pressed their case, emphasizing the trade the colony would bring and keeping the Christianity and civilization part to themselves. We took great care, after our former experience, not to offer to their consideration any views which they could not fully comprehend, Ayers remembered condescendingly. Finally, Peter relented. He would talk to his head man and return the next day to make a book, which was local slang for the peculiar white man's practice of consummating deals on paper. He then left with his entourage in the tobacco and rum. The next day, the agents found themselves waiting once again and begged the local headman to send for Peter. When he showed up three hours late, there was little talk of land. Instead, Ayers noted, the unfortunate subject of the slave trade was broached, and we again broke off our talks. Our prospect at this time was very dull. End quote. 
Needless to say, negotiations did not go well. King Peter, the paramount political authority in the immediate area, was immensely distrustful of foreigners in general, and white foreigners in particular. He was especially worried that American settlement might interfere with his people's trade and slaves. Again, Kemet provides the perfect narrative of what happens next, so I'll just quote-unquote. When Peter failed to show up on the third day, the agents decided that if the king would not come to them, they would go to the king. With an indigenous crew man in the lead, the two made their way, wallowing through mud, passing through thick and dark swamps to King Peterstown, some six miles into the interior. The trek, it turned out, was the least of the agents' difficulties. While day customs demanded the two agents be treated as guests, their host made it clear they were not welcome. When Peter finally made his appearance in the hut, he shook their hands but dispensed with the diplomatic approach. What you want that land for, he barked. Ayers made his well-worn pitch once more. The room began to fill with men and murmuring. One crew man said loudly that they had seen the new colonists on Sherbro and that all they did was quarrel among themselves. Another man pointed at Stockton and claimed to have seen him seizing a French slave ship. The room rose to its feet, Ayers recalled, as the murmuring turned into horrid war shouting. Stockton, who had sidled his way to the king's side, drew his pistols and pointed one at the head of the king. He then handed the other to Ayers and told him to shoot anyone who threatened them. Talk about brass big ones. Stockton had mas huevos. The crowd, Ayers later recalled, prostrated itself and Stockton began to lecture them while Mills interpreted. It was a theatrical performance. With his free hand raised to heaven, the Navy lieutenant swore before the sacred throne of God that he would not be made a fool of. For three days, he said, Peter's people had drunk the rum and smoked the tobacco he and Ayers had brought with no intention of dealing with them honorably. At this point, according to Ayers, the sun broke through the clouds, bathing Stockton in ethereal light. It would become one of the iconic moments in Liberian history. The threat worked. Ayers wrote, I believe the old king was afraid of being served as the French vessel was, for he soon promised to call some more kings and meet us on the shore the next morning and make a book which was to give us land. On December 15th, King Peter and five other chiefs put their mark to the first treaty ever reached between the settlers and the natives. Three casks of tobacco, five casks of beef, one barrel of rum, six muskets, 12 guns, three barrels of gunpowder, 20 looking glasses, four umbrellas, one box of proverbial beads. These were among the $300 worth of goods Ayers and Stockton exchanged with Peter and the local chiefs for a 40-mile stretch of territory with the several hundred-foot-high Cape Miserado future site of the Liberian capital, Monrovia, at its center. For generations, Liberian schoolchildren, both the descendants of the settlers and the, quote, civilized natives they shared their classrooms with, would memorize the terms of the trade as shorthand for the ignorance of the natives and the cleverness of the colonists. By the 1970s, however, revisionist historians would turn the myth inside out, emphasizing Stockton's gun at Peter's head. They would condemn the deal as Liberia's original sin, the first of many acts of duplicity and arrogance perpetrated by the colonists, end quote. The deal concluded. Iris returned to Sierra Leone and retrieved the colonists, who arrived at Cape Mezzarado on January 7, 1822. It was the birth of modern Liberia. When they set foot on land, the settlers learned that many of the locals wished to break their treaty with the American freemen, and King Peter was already under arrest and would likely be executed in the coming days for making the deal in the first place. The settlers exchanged worried, oh shit, looks with one another. But Ayers didn't care. Assisted by an energetic freeman named Lot Carey, a man who had worked for six years to buy not only his own but his family's freedom, Ayers and Carey were going to occupy the land come hell or high water. 
In the meantime, the colonists set up a temporary camp on a malaria-infested island, denuded of trees. Over the next few days, as negotiations with the locals continued, many of the men became sick from the fetid rank conditions. A little over a week after landing, the settlers again negotiated with local political leaders in King Peter's town. This time, the colonists went armed. The Africans didn't want to hear anything Ayers or his, quote, black white men had to say. Their answer was that they were not willing we should have the land, Ayers later wrote, and that I now take back the money which we had paid King Peter and leave the country. After the legalistic agent pointed out that the natives had drunk the rum and smoked the tobacco, a headman named King Willie turned to him and patiently explained what he thought a white man's contract was really worth. Quote, he said he would eat all our tobacco and drink all our rum. And then he would drive us away, Ayers later said. The headmen picked themselves up and walked off, all but Peter, that is. King Peter was desperate. Big tears rolled down his furrowed cheek, and he pleaded with Ayers, They will kill we, and we not want to die. There was nothing for it. The settlers had to leave. A few months later, another local king named King Boatswain arrived with more than 200 warriors to make peace with the settlers. He was curious about the American freed men who dressed and talked like Europeans but were of African descent. King Boatswain heard Ayers out and then decided to make peace. He rebuked the local crew leaders and commanded them to keep their deal with Ayers. The next day, a giant ceremony took place and the settlers were granted their land. However, they didn't even have a clearing on the Cape and no native was willing to help them. They may have a legal title to the land, but they literally had no buildings, no agriculture, nothing. They had a wild, verdant coast similar to the island in the film Castaway, and the rainy season was fast approaching. Ayers took stock and suggested the settlers return to Sierra Leone to wait out the rains, but the settlers said no, they wouldn't leave. The land was hard and filled with mosquitoes, but anyone could see it had potential. That's when the brawny Lot Carey stepped forward, the natural leader of the freedmen. We would rather lose our lives, he said, than to run the least hazard of losing a place possessing so many advantages. This cape is ours. Another settler, a son of New Jersey named Elijah Johnson, spoke up. I've been two years searching for a home in Africa, and I have found it, and here I will remain. Ayers nodded with respectful admiration. Pain was coming, but looking around at the lush land, a rich reward would follow. But Ayers wouldn't be there. He was sick, and he felt his work at the colony was over. He told the settlers he was returning to America, and that's just what he did. Elijah Johnson was placed in charge of the colonists, and he promptly set about building a village torn from nothing amid the beautiful but harsh wilderness of Cape Meserado. They would call the place Monrovia. For the next few months, the colonists worked like ants to build their settlement. To make matters worse, natives skulked around the camp looking for weaknesses. The colonists often fired on them, but no serious violence took place. Still, it kept the settlers on their toes. It's hard to build huts in the middle of torrential rains. It's even harder when hundreds of locals are actively considering killing you. A few months later, ominous reports drifted into the colonists' camp. Local chiefs were recruiting warriors from far away in order to drive the settlers into the sea. Most colonists didn't believe an attack would come. They felt King Boatswain had control over the tribes in the immediate area. But then something unsettling began to happen. One by one, local youths who had been sent to Cape Meserado to learn, quote, civilized ways from the settlers began to leave. Soon there were none left. You didn't have to be Sherlock Holmes to surmise the teenagers were receiving secret intelligence that war was coming. And war did come. On November 10th, 1822, that's the day that hundreds of warriors encamped about a half a mile away from the Freeman's settlement. The next day at dawn, the Americo-Liberian guards, worn out from the strain of staring death in the face, left their posts before they were replaced. 
The indigenous Africans, composed of tribesmen from all over the coast, couldn't believe it. This was their chant. And so, under ominous dark clouds, the natives attacked the Cape, rushing and screaming as they came on, some firing muskets, most using spears. A number of settlers were killed outside the flimsy, stake-like palisade walls, cut down as they tried to negotiate with their onrushing attackers. The remaining settlers, their eyes wide with fear, hands trembling from the body-rattling adrenaline pumping through their veins, retreated behind the timber walls of the settlement. Picture a large cereal bowl. A kindergartner attempts to pour her own milk for her cereal, but her inept hands spill the liquid, which pulls in an ever-widening circle around the bowl. Such was the way the native warriors surrounded the free men's camp. Had the enemy at this instant pressed their advantage, an American eyewitness later wrote, it is hardly conceivable that we should have had success, end quote. But then the natives were struck down not by the arms of the settlers, but by something much worse, greed. The warriors stopped to loot the huts surrounding the palisade encampment, and it was this pause that gave the redoubtable Lot Carey time to organize an effective defense. Carey, his arms snaked by veins from years of hard work, his shoulders thick and bull-like, directed the defense, raking the natives with musket fire and more terribly cannon fire. The settlers had one cannon, and it made all the difference. The grape shot tore into the half-naked bodies of the indigenous warriors, tearing apart their athletic figures, deconstructing them into mangled modern art. Where once Olympians had run forward, Picasso Cubist paintings fell into the blood-laden mud. It was more than the attacking crew could stand. They turned and fled, rushing headlong into the second wave of advancing warriors, turning a retreat into a disorganized rout, as confused as the cursed men working the Tower of Babel. Imagination can scarcely figure to itself a throng of human beings in a more horrible state of exposure to the destructive power of the machinery of modern warfare, a colonist would later record. Eight hundred men were pressed shoulder to shoulder and all exposed to a gun of great power. Every shot literally spent its force in a solid mass of living human flesh, bursting them apart like exploding pumpkins. By eight o'clock that night, the fighting was over. A savage yell was raised, which filled the dismal force with a momentary horror. It gradually died away, and the whole host disappeared. Another eyewitness later said that the entire area surrounding the camp sounded like one savage yell as men died outside the palisade walls. The colonists continued their cannon fire at the retreating canoes of the natives. James Kimmett picks up the story, quote, the colonists had suffered just eight casualties, four killed and four injured. An equal number of children had been seized by the attackers, though, and their fate was unknown. Moreover, the battle had left the colonists low on food, medicine, and ammunition. The latter was insufficient for a single hour's defense of the place if hotly attacked. And while the natives had retreated from the Cape, their army remained camped nearby. The colonists dispatched a messenger. They wanted peace but we're prepared to carry on the war, and they can render it immensely more bloody and destructive than you ever felt it before. Now, this was a bluff. The natives sent familiar replies back to the settlers. The settlers deceived us. They paid for the island and took the cape. Native traders had been cheating and roughly abusing the settler storekeepers. The colonists had not fulfilled their promise of instructing the people. Remedy these injuries, the headman said, and we will gladly make peace. Now, this was just more idle talk. What really pitted settler against native again went unspoken. It was the slave trade, a business for the natives, which was an abomination to the settlers, who were determined to wipe it out as soon as they had the means to do so. They would prefer to do it by persuasion, but the natives' resistance made it appear that it would only be achieved by force. And so there was nothing to negotiate and everything to fight for. Within a few weeks, the two sides would be at it again. The second battle for the Cape 
went down much like the first. Hundreds of natives, in greater number than before, were again driven back by the outnumbered settlers. While Carrie and the other settlers knelt in prayer and attributed their victory to the special guardianship of divine providence, the record shows that it was their artillery that carried the day. None of the kings of this part of the coast are without a cannon, one settler named Ashman noted, but to load a great gun is with them the business of half an hour, and they were seriously disposed to attribute to sorcery the art of charging and firing these destructive machines from four to six times in one minute. Harrison Auchingbod takes up the story, quote, The beating of war drums and the yelling of warriors in a frenzy of war deafened the whole cape. The Africans ran headlong towards the stockade. The first rush was beaten back before they could reach it. Two further attempts were made by the indigenous soldiers to storm the stockade, a wave of African bodies breaking on the settlers' front lines, but each attempt met with defeat. The warriors now changed their tactics. Instead of attacking from the front, they advanced from the side and managed to force their way into the stockade. There commenced the fiercest and most bloody battle of the short war. The clattering of spears and of cutlass swords and the whizzing of arrows with an occasional interlude of cannon and musket shots intensified the ferocity of the battle. The cannon was kept busy throughout the battle. It tore through the throng of soldiers, felling and piling on top of one another like stacks of firewood, and the rest retreated horror-stricken. This battle was again a victory for the colonists. Having battled so hard, the colonists were completely exhausted. They lost seven men out of their total number of 35 fighters. The losses sustained by the Africans could not easily be assessed, for they were great. The settlers could barely recover from the pain of physical exhaustion. When a regiment of African soldiers, in spite of the losses they had sustained, bombarded the settlement and advanced to the front, the direction in which the cannon was pointed. The courage and fortitude of the colonists melted away, and they gave up in despair. It was at this juncture that a lady, Matilda Newport, went forth to save the situation. Her heart was steeled when she perceived the colonists losing the battle. Many children and women were taken prisoners, and the conditions were deplorable. She asked permission to be allowed to smoke her pipe. The permission was granted, and she stealthily went to the captured cannon and tossed in an ember from her pipe. The cannon exploded and killed a number of warriors. The others fled into the bushes, horror-stricken. The battle for the future of Liberia was over. The Americos had won. But more than just natives fell in the battle. Many of the American settlers' ideals died with the natives. An historian provides the details of the aftermath of the conflict. Quote, After the battle, when a British captain passing through, the celebrated Alexander Gordon Lang offered to mediate between the colonists and the chiefs, he found the latter entirely exhausted and overwhelmed with vexation and shame. Their warriors dispersed far and wide and their resources entirely exhausted. The chiefs agreed to a truce with the settlers, though it remained an uneasy one. Around the same time as Lang's visit, a native messenger appeared outside the palisades of the settlement on Meserado. The parents of stolen children, the messenger said, were welcome to come and retrieve their children. The scene was a heartbreaking one. The children had been turned over to elderly ladies. More than any treaty, the transfer of the children signaled a reconciliation of sorts, even if it was founded in the natives' fear of settlers' arms. After this temporary resolution of the conflict between native and settler, a new challenge arose, perhaps inevitably. For suppressed in the struggle against the enemy from without and their unresolved tensions within between white paternalism and black autonomy would soon snap the bonds between the settlers and their European agents. Put succinctly, the freed black men who had come to Africa wanted to be rulers of their own country. They'd had enough of white men telling them what to do. Here in the land of their forefathers, they would be boss. Conflict was inevitable. But that's next month's podcast.
And that's another one of the books for me. As always, I want to thank everybody who donates, everybody who writes in telling me how much they love the show. I really enjoy hearing from you guys. Moreover, if you want to do me a solid, you can share the show with a friend. And if not, that's cool too. I appreciate you more than you know. I love this stuff. I love the stories of humanity, the crew and the Liberians, the Afrikaners and the Zulu, the Armenians and the Koreans, and yes, even my own people. You, all of you, are beautiful and ugly. You're evil and you're good. You're noble and you're savage. And so I'll leave you with a quote. Quote, Hello, listener. You know the places where I come from. They call it 9 to 5. It's never 9 to 5. There's no free lunch break at those places. In fact, at many of them, in order to keep your job, you don't take lunch. You know my old saying, slavery was never abolished, it was only extended to include all the colors. And what hurts is the steadily diminishing humanity of those fighting to hold jobs they don't want, but fear the alternative worse. People simply empty out. They are bodies with fearful and obedient minds. The color leaves the eye, the voice becomes ugly, and the body, the hair, the fingernails, the shoes, everything does. As a young man, I could not believe that people could give their lives over to these conditions. As an old man, I still can't believe it. What do they do it for? Sex? TV? An automobile on monthly payments? Early on, when I was quite young and going from job to job, I was foolish enough to sometimes speak to my fellow workers. Hey, you know the boss can come in here at any moment and just lay all of us off. Just like that. Don't you realize that? They would just look at me. I was posing something that they didn't want to enter into their minds. Now in industry, there are vast layoffs. They are laid off by the hundreds of thousands and their faces are stunned. I put in 35 years, it ain't right. I don't know what to do. They never pay the slaves enough so they can get free, just enough so they can stay alive and come back to work. I could see all this, but why couldn't they? I was disgusted at it all. I remember once working as a packer in this light fixture company. One of the packers suddenly said, I'll never be free. One of the bosses was walking by, and he let out this delicious cackle of a laugh, enjoying the fact that this fellow was trapped for life. So the luck I finally had in getting out of those places, no matter how long it took, has given me a kind of joy, the jolly joy of the miracle. To not have to entirely waste one's life seems to be a worthy accomplishment, if only for myself. Sincerely, Charles Bukowski. End quote. And with that salubrious thought, I'm Dr. Luke Wolf, and I'm wishing you good times and good weather with good people. Pop one with me.